Welcome to Ag PhD Radio, broadcasting from the Morton studio today. I'm Darren Hefty. And I'm Brian Hefty. Today, our topic is phosphorus. If you've got any questions about phosphorus, or quite frankly, if there's anything going on on your farm that you'd like to visit about, agronomically speaking, we'd love to take your phone call, 844-44-AG-PHD. That's 844-442-4743. You can also email us, radio at agphd.com, or find us on Twitter, agphdmedia, Darren Hefty or Brian Hefty. All right, phosphorus is one of my favorite nutrients to talk about because how you apply it and where you apply it makes such an enormous difference because this nutrient is virtually immobile in soil. So if you're going to lay it on the soil surface, guess what? It's going to stay there. And... Not only is it going to stay there and not be super available for your crop, but now you have a lot more risk for water quality issues. Phosphorus is the number one water quality issue in fresh water in the United States today. And the reason why it is is because it's the limiting factor for algae growth. So, for example, if you have soil erosion near a lake and there's a lot of phosphorus in that soil, which there often is, if you've applied it on the soil surface and didn't till it in, well, then guess where the phosphorus goes? It goes right with the soil, washes into that lake, and then you have an algae bloom. And it's, I mean, it's really no mystery. So how do you stop this? Two ways. Number one, you reduce erosion. Number two, you place phosphorus down in the ground. And what I always say is, where where are most of the crop roots? They aren't in the top quarter inch of soil. They are way down in that ground. Three to nine inches deep is where we see the vast majority, or four to nine inches deep is where we see the vast majority of most plant roots. And that's where you want your phosphorus. That's where you get the most efficiency out of it. Now, the other thing, when we talk about efficiency, phosphorus is the number one nutrient where you will gain by banding it, at least in the short term. In the long term, if you say, well, look, I own the ground. I don't really care if I get it this year, 10 years from now, or 20 years from now. It's out there. Then I'm in agreement with you. And broadcasting phosphorus is great. Our research on our own farm, on large-scale trials, has shown it may take 10, 12, 15 years before you're really tapping into the majority of that broadcast phosphorus. Seriously. It's that long. It's kind of crazy. You see a lot of tie-up. And you also just see the fact that plant roots can't find it. Plant roots are not smart. They can't just all of a sudden see, oh, hey, there's some phosphorus over there. I'm going to send my best root over to get it. No, they have no idea. Roots are taking the path of least resistance. They don't know where the phosphorus is. When they run into it, now granted, then they're probably going to throw more roots in that area. We've seen that also in our research. But this is why banding is such a big deal. So most research out there, including ours, has shown you should be able to get by with, well, let me, let me phrase this correctly here. Crop removal rates or, or what the plant needs if you're banding. You're going to need about 50% more if you're broadcasting. Seriously, that's what our research has shown for years and years and years. So don't just think that, oh, it doesn't really matter how I apply my phosphorus. No, this is the number one nutrient where how you apply it and again, where you apply it makes all the difference in the world. Now, when we talk about some of the leachable nutrients, nitrate, sulfate, boron, things like that, 
I, I mean, if you band it, you broadcast it, whatever. I mean, you might gain a little bit by banding, but not a whole lot. But phosphorus, oh yeah, this is a big deal. Also, I'll just say we do like using some liquid fertilizer, and a lot of people use some liquid starter, but you got to be real careful about the salt. So I'd really encourage you to use a low-salt product. Also, blend it off with water so you kind of spread it around the soil a little bit better when you're using something in furrow. That can be a big deal. But low-salt product, low rate when we're talking phosphorus, you do that. A lot of times you can get that crop off to a better start. You have drier crop in the fall. It's just, I mean, it's farther along, all season long. A lot of times you gain a little bit in yield. You know, it all depends on how much phosphorus is already in your soil. But that in-furrow application of phosphorus can be important. But again, keep the rate low, low salt. If you want to run higher rates, that's where you got to go two by two, maybe two by two on both sides of the row. Like what we do on our farm, some deep band stuff in strip till. So lots of different ways to do this thing. But again, just keep in mind, phosphorus doesn't move in soil I mean, sure, if you have extreme high levels, it could move. But as a general statement, no, phosphorus is pretty well stuck where you put it. All right, uh, we'll continue talking phosphorus throughout the show. Right now, let's get to the Ag PhD mailbag. It's the mailbag! And here's one of the challenges, Brian. I got this one from Dusty down in Texas, and he said, Guys, this is a 60-acre field on a short-term lease. I'm low in P and K. Yep. I'm low in a bunch of the micros and yep. sulfur. I've got 150 bushel per acre yield goal. What would you do? Ban my P and K. There's no question here. You're really low. I mean, this is 10 parts per million on P and less than 2% base saturation potassium. I mean, you just don't have enough of either. So in situations exactly like this, soil tests very similar to this, we've banded and it's turned out great. So that's what I would be doing. All right, got this question that came in from Luke, and he said, I'm down in Nebraska. I'm going to be spreading some potash, and I was thinking about spreading some 36 dry zinc at the same time. My question is, how much zinc does it take to change part per million levels? My soil's got a CEC of 8 to 12 with an average right around 10. Uh, just wondering how many pounds of dry to increase one part per million. I'm trying to get my zinc and phosphate ratio correct. Sure. Yeah, it's a pretty simple formula. We talk about this all the time when we do soils clinics. Every three inches of soil across an acre weighs about a million pounds. So six inches of soil weighs about two million pounds. So when you're talking parts per million and you have a six-inch soil test, which most people do, to convert a pounds per acre or parts per million, I should say, to pounds per acre, you just multiply times two. So if we wanted to raise part per million by one, then we'd need two actual pounds, and then it's just whatever percent active that zinc you're talking about is. A lot of times it's 35%, so you need approximately six pounds of that zinc material. Stay tuned, we'll be right back. There's no time to mess around when it comes to early season protection from yield-robbing pests and diseases. Ethos XB Insecticide Fungicide is the next generation of at plant protection. Through your liquid fertilizer system, get broad-spectrum defense and create an environment where seedlings can vigorously emerge with more uniformity, helping to optimize your productivity and yield. Get serious seedling defense with Ethos XB Insecticide Fungicide. Ethos XB Insecticide Fungicide is a restricted-use pesticide. Always read and follow all label directions. It takes balance to be successful in farming because what you get out of it depends on what you put in. 
And Corteva AgriScience gets that. Introducing Nutricia and Nutrient Efficiency Optimizer, a biological product that naturally captures nitrogen from the air. It's a sustainable way to add balance to your traditional nitrogen methods and maximize your yield potential. Embrace a balanced approach to nitrogen management this season by visiting Corteva.us. There's an innovative new soybean herbicide on the market that's helping close the door on weed resistance and open new doors to productivity. Preview 2.1 SC Herbicide from UPL is a multi-mode of action pre-emergent that controls the most resistant broadleaf weeds at the beginning of the season and continues to control later weeds with strong residual activity. Ask your retailer about Preview 2.1 Herbicide from UPL and always read and follow label directions. When we told growers that New Bear Premium Trivolt Herbicide for corn delivers visibly clean fields for up to eight weeks, they were a bit skeptical. Um, we'll see how it works. So we decided to prove it. We set up cameras in multiple cornfields, treated them with Trivolt, and for 24 hours a day. For eight weeks, we saw a variety of weather conditions, and Trivolt worked. See for yourself at TrivoltInAction.com. Trivolt is a restricted-use pesticide. Consult your state pesticide regulator for specific restrictions. Read and follow pesticide label directions. listening to Ag PhD Radio. We're broadcasting from the Martin studio today, taking your calls and agronomic questions throughout the show at 844-44-AG-PHD. You can also email us, radio at agphd.com, if you've got a question or a soil test like we just went through just a minute ago here. Uh, we'll talk about phosphorus, though, today and continue that discussion. We're real happy to have Charlie White with us right now out in Pennsylvania with Penn State. How are you doing, Charlie? Great. How are you all today? We're doing pretty well. I hear guys are already starting to scratch around in the field a little bit in Pennsylvania in some areas. Yeah, it's been unseasonably warm. Uh, you could go out today without a jacket on even. So um, definitely we're thinking springtime here. All right. So I know farmers in Pennsylvania in some areas had trouble getting the amount of fertilizer they wanted timely last fall. And some of the guys said, man, it was just conditions weren't great in the field to get out and get stuff done. So there's a lot of talk about some some spring applications of phosphorus. Talk us through that. How can we best utilize this nutrient and, and make it the most available for our crop this year? Yeah, sure. Well, for me, phosphorus, more than anything else, I think about placement. Um, and for a couple reasons, uh, it's very immobile in the soil. And so we want it placed somewhere where the root system is going to get it. Um, so I'm not a big fan of, of broadcast uh, applications that won't be incorporated, which with the you know prevalence of no-till, most folks aren't plowing that phosphorus into the soil. So I really like to get it on with a planter if possible and, and get it uh, down in the furrow or two by two next to the furrow uh, where it will be available for the roots. Um, and that also helps to prevent losses and runoff. And, it, you know, here in the Chesapeake Bay watershed, that's a big concern for us, losing phosphorus through surface runoff. Yeah, absolutely. Plus, uh, you think about it this way, phosphorus is expensive. It costs a lot of money to put out there, so we don't want to waste dollars either. And, of course, we do want to do the right thing for the environment. So I, I like the idea of putting it right where you need it. I, I look at, on our farm too, uh, in addition to, to planter options, strip-till is one of those things that's kind of a uh, in, in my mind, anyway, best of both worlds situation where you can maybe put the phosphorus in just a little bit deeper, yet still leave a lot of protection up there for your soil in between the rows. 
Exactly. I'm a big fan of that. And we have some guys that are starting to work with that um, as well. Uh, and, you know, hoping for hoping for success with it. Um, one of the things I see when we soil sample no-till fields and you can cut the soil core into depth increments, the vast majority in no-till systems, the vast majority of the phosphorus is in that zero to one or one or two inch layer. And when that layer dries out in the summer, you don't have water movement to the, the crop roots. And so, you know, you might be pulling a core for your soil test at six inches deep and it looks like you've got phosphorus available because of the soil test level. But if most of that phosphorus is in that one or two inch layer, it's really not as available as you might think. And so I really like that idea of getting it down four or five inches deep with a, a strip till system, um, you know, where it'll stay in a moist soil and closer to the root system. One other thing I was thinking about too is is just in in your state and many others there's livestock and we've got manure that we're going to be putting out there and I know for for us we're always concerned about well how much phosphorus is in there and and in some forms of manure there's more than others of course but uh, when you think about phosphorus and manure applications what tips do you have for growers in your area and beyond? Yeah, well, I think it's really important to know your manure analysis, right? You really can't be very precise with your manure nutrient rates if you haven't had it analyzed. So that's the first step. Um, and there can also be a lot of variability in your storage, too. And so understanding how that variability plays out, like if you're pumping out a swine storage that hasn't been agitated, uh, your first couple loads are probably going to be really thick and your last couple loads are going to be really thick. And those are going to be your high phosphorus loads. Um, so maybe consider getting those sampled separately um, just to understand what they are. Even if you don't get them sampled separately, you know, recognize that they're going to be higher in phosphorus and maybe try and take those to fields that have slightly lower soil test levels um, so that you're not uh, exacerbating problem fields that might be might be elevated. Um, so that's that's one of the suggestions. And just keep up with soil testing, too, so you understand if you are over applying you know, what is that rate of buildup and, uh, you know, have some of your fields reached some critical level where you might think about not applying manure on them anymore. All right, let me throw another tricky question at you. High soil pH, and I know a lot of times we'll get soil samples from growers and they'll say, I'm having some issues with nutrient availability, especially in these high pH zones. Uh, how do you go about attacking that? Yeah, well, it's, you know, getting the pH into the optimum range, 6.5 to 7.0, is, is going to help increase availability of phosphorus as well as availability of some of your micronutrients. And so, um, you know, depending on where you are, right, in rainy areas, um, you're going to tend to, the soils will acidify over time. Dry areas, they're going to tend to get higher over time. And so, you know, if you're in a rainy area, you could just wait a while and maybe delay a lime application or look at variable rate lime applications so you're not applying to the parts of the field that are, are too high already and just naturally let them go over time. Um, in alkaline areas, it's it's uh, a little bit more, or in drier areas where the soils tend to be alkaline, it's a little bit more challenging. Um, not being from a, a dry area myself, I, I don't know exactly how folks are attacking it. I don't know if folks are looking at uh, elemental sulfur to maybe try and acidify the soil a little bit if that's economical or, or not. Um, you guys might have more experience than me in, in some of those regions with how folks are trying to acidify their soils to be more optimum pH. 
Yeah, high pH is a lot, lot more tricky than low pH. Low pH is great because, hey, we can get some lime out there and, and things are going to get up into that range relatively quickly in most cases. But but the high pH, yeah, it's, it's looking at that complete soil test and figuring out what are we short on, what are we excessive in, and, and kind of working from there. And we're talking with Charlie. Right. Oh, go ahead, Charlie. I, w- I was just going to say, you know, sometimes for some of the micronutrients, too, um, that might be when foliar sprays come into into effect where you sort of bypass the soil chemistry and just get it applied right to the plant tissue. That can be another strategy. Yeah, there are a lot of ways around this fertility piece, and I love that you brought in the just the environmental piece on this, that we want to be really careful with what we're doing with phosphorus since it doesn't move well through the soil. By putting it on the top, we aren't big fans of broadcast without incorporation either just because, I mean, it, you can get a lot of work done fast. There's no question about that. But that phosphorus is really susceptible to erosion. And I've been in Pennsylvania enough to know that uh, you get some hilly ground there that I'd be a little nervous about soil moving on me. So uh, I can understand your, your caution on that one. Yeah. Well, Charlie, thank you so much. We really appreciate having you on. Thanks for talking a little phosphorus with us, and good luck heading into the spring here. Yeah, thanks. Have a great day. Brian, Charlie brings up a great point on that nutrient stratification as well, and that's one of the big challenges. I know we are are probably more often going to get too dry than too wet, at least through the middle part of the growing season, when we have a high demand for nutrients, right as corn's heading towards tassel, right as soybeans are flowering and trying to put on pods. They need to pull a lot of phosphorus out of the ground in a hurry, and if if we aren't getting timely rainfall, if that phosphorus isn't deep in the soil, we just don't have a shot. Definitely. Anytime there's dry weather, you want to have more concentration of nutrient in the soil because you're going to be bringing in less water. And just because the way that these nutrients get into the plant is with water. So less water means you got to have higher concentration to get the same dose into that plant. The other thing that I wanted to mention before I forget it is with phosphorus, the zinc, phosphorus to zinc ratio and phosphorus to copper ratio, those are real things. I didn't really know how big a deal that was until we we started looking at this on literally thousands of points on our farm here over the last five years. But it is a big deal. I can absolutely see it. So like phosphorus to zinc, going to be somewhere around 10 to 1 ratio. Not that you have to be exact, but I'll tell you what, we found if we're at a 2 to 1 or 3 to 1 ratio, oh, it hurts yield. If we're at a 50 to 1 or 60 to 1 ratio, it definitely hurts yield. So we need to be somewhere in that 10 to 1 ballpark phosphorus to copper it's somewhere around 30 to 1 but again i mean it it really can i mean it just doesn't have to be exact so yeah there's lots to talk about when it comes to phosphorus all right we'll talk more about this key nutrient and we'll also dig into the ag phd mailbag we've had a number of fertility related and other questions that have come in if you've got an agronomic question on your farm, you can email us, radio at agphd.com, or you can just call us. Our phone lines will be open throughout the rest of the show at 844-44-AG-PHD. We'll be right back. Think ahead to planting. Schedule your planter inspection with the experts at CNB. Make sure your equipment is in top shape and ready for the field this spring. CNB is your local John Deere dealer offering expert service and customer commitment. Learn more or schedule your appointment online today at DeereEquipment.com. 
Get your planter ready for spring with Germinator Closing Wheels from Farm Shop MFG. And now when you buy 12 rows or more, get free shipping or 20% off an end zone bin system. Offer good while supplies last, so order yours today at farmshopmfg.com. In 1923, Bert R. Benjamin had a vision, an all-purpose tractor that could do more. With that, the Farmall was born. This year, Case IH is celebrating 100 years of Farmall. 100 years of milestones, 100 years of innovation, passion, grit. And they're doing it through your stories. Share them at farmall100.com. One lucky storyteller will win their own Farmall. The tractor that is the one for all. This is Officer Jones calling for backup. 10-4, location? Graber back 40. Looks like we've got Palmer Amaranth, Kosha, some common water hemp. Resistant weeds. Copy that. You'll need a good tank mix partner. I'm sending tough 5 UC. Come on, pick it up! Guys, we're surrounded. Crack down on repeat offenders. Add tough 5 EC to your post-emergence tank mix. Learn more at toughonweeds.com. Always read and follow label directions. Tough is a registered trademark of Belgian Crop Protection. Warehouse, what can we do for you? Yeah, I'm looking for some nitrogen. All right, we're running low and it's awful pricey, but uh, let me check. Hold. The answer to low supply and high prices for nitrogen is Invita, a microbe with systemic nitrogen fixation. Invita works throughout the foliage and roots, providing a right place, right time source of nitrogen to maximize yield in corn, wheat, and soybeans. Yeah, we're all out, but... You know what? I'll take some of that Invita. <laughs> That's what I was going to recommend. Book your Invita while supplies last. Get more durability for less downtime with Soil Warrior Strip Tillage from Environmental Tillage Systems. Improve fertilizer efficiency and reduce passes and fuel usage. Now that's ROI. Learn more about ETS at SoilWarrior.com. With superior materials, craftsmanship, and best-in-class warranty, a Morton machine storage or workshop is built to stand the test of time. To learn how we can help you expand your farm operation, visit MortonBuildings.com. Did you know soybean diseases like white mold and sudden death syndrome can survive in your soil even after rotating crops? Prevention of these diseases is a constant battle and yield loss from an infection can be devastating. The right management plan makes all the difference. Keep your beans safe with Heads Up Seed Treatment. Heads Up guards your seed from both white mold and SDS. Stay protected and profitable by asking your seed dealer for Heads Up. Learn more at HeadsUpST.com. Welcome back. You're listening to Ag PhD Radio. We are talking phosphorus on today's show, but we're also taking your calls and agronomic questions at 844-44-AG-PHD. And you can always email us, radio at agphd.com. Real happy to have Curtis Pate with us right now with Agtegrity down in Arizona. Uh, Curtis, thank you so much. Really appreciate having you on the show. It's a pleasure. All right, so we're talking phosphorus here, and and I love it. We were talking with Charlie White out at Penn State, and and he said, ah, you guys might be more familiar with dry conditions and and what you see there. And well, hey, let's talk to Curtis down in Arizona. We can talk about dry a little bit and about irrigation and what a difference it can make too. I'm sure. Uh, so when it comes to phosphorus, what are some of the challenges your growers have that you work with there? Well, because I deal with a lot of permanent crops, um, even the alfalfa that we deal with, you kind of got to get get the phosphate down into the soil to be real effective. And so, 
you know, work in a work in a heavy enough load before you plant your trees or or put in your your alfalfa and get it where it needs to be is the number one thing. And then the number two is we're we're a lot better off to use compost everywhere that we can. You know, you you mentioned the permanent crops, and and I want to ask you a little bit more about this since you get get a chance to work with those uh neil kinsey talks a lot about building up levels like potassium seven and a half percent base saturation ahead of a, a permanent crop oh, like wish. that uh it's not cheap so so what do you do i guess what are kind of some thresholds you have and and what are some practices growers are having success with so the Talking about building up your uh, potassium levels in our soils with pHs well above 7.4, you basically can't build up your potassiums, at least not economically, without the use of a compost. So, number one thing is I, I want to take the phosphate budget and put as much of that over into compost as possible because that's the best way for us to build our potassium levels. If we can take our phosphate budget, put it in compost we get the potassium for free and so that's the that's the the number one thing that that i want to be doing for getting the potassium up and then the rest of that story on the potassium is that if we we have high a lot of sodium or sodic soils and uh saline or sodic so we have to get our potassium levels and our base saturation above our sodium levels and otherwise, the, the tree will take up sodium when it wants potassium, and it, then it, when it realizes it's toxic, it'll deposit it in the wood, and eventually you'll have limb breaks in just you know nominal winds so, from the, the accumulation of the sodium. So if we can get our potassium level high in the first place, and by high, I, I'd love to see above four. You said seven, seven and a half. That would be a dream. But uh, I, I don't ever get anything above a five. Um, and typically things that haven't been done right are down around one, one and a half with sodium levels at 8%. So we've got some real challenges there. And compost is the number one way to start addressing that. And then, of course, we'll, we'll use you know, material, KTS as a, as a water run or... Uh, sulfate of potash going down as well but the the most economical long-term answer is is a good good compost all right uh, a couple of things then just to follow up uh first of all compost is that readily available in arizona or is that something that that you've got to go a little further away to find well we've got some some uh, feedlot operations that uh, are turning turning uh, into compost and so we're, you know, we're not using pen run, <clears throat> but the, uh, the compost is, is pretty good, uh, availability. And then, you know, we've got occasionally we'll run into some, some, uh, green, green waste that's been composted. And, uh, I like that for, for my potassium. It really doesn't have the phosphate that I need. And so that's one of those things that, that w- when it's available, we'll look at it. Um, at a lower cost. Sure, 
Sure. And I know uh, growing up, I, I learned this from my dad. He grew up in north central Iowa with four feet deep black soil. And in my mind, this probably didn't happen. But it seemed like they got an inch of rain every week during the growing season and everything was perfect, which I'm sure it wasn't. But growing up in <laughs> South Dakota, we know what happens when uh, conditions aren't ideal and soils aren't the best. Man, when you're making those kinds of adjustments, it's really got to stand out for the growers when they get things. Like you were mentioning, some of these growers have got base saturation potassiums up up in the fives, and then you get others that are struggling to get one. Uh, that has to be pretty visual. Yeah, it makes it, it makes a real difference on water consumption and your overall nutrient balance. Just to, it, you know, we don't ever find utopia, but that's as close as we get. How about water infiltration? I know you talk about water efficiency, but even just getting the water to get down through that soil on some of those saline and sodic soils that you fight. Yeah, that's that's the number one sealer of our soils is the sodium, and so we we have to get uh, get it perking. and And of course, we're using a lot of a lot of calcium, primarily uh, beet lime, but uh, that's that we're getting the soils open, and that's. You just need the drainage to uh, to move that sodium out. Then, well, I love I love being resourceful. Uh, you find beet lime to get your calcium. You find compost to to get the P and K that you need. You got to work with what you've got in your area, and that's right. There, there's no excuses. There there's going to be a source of of what you need if you just look hard enough. Absolutely. We're we're talking with Curtis Absolutely. Pate here with Integrity down in Arizona. Curtis, this has been great. We want to talk to you again sometime down the road. So hopefully we can hook up again. It's a pleasure. Let's head over to Georgia. Got Doug on right now, talking a little phosphorus. How you doing, Doug? Pretty good. Pretty good. How y'all doing? Pretty good. Uh, what can we do for you? All right. My question that um, Brian was talking about earlier, how the phosphorus doesn't move without tilling into the soil, and I'm primarily a hay farmer, and I know some of my fertilizer mixes has got phosphorus in it. Yep. So is it basically just laying there and not doing nothing? There's a fair amount that's just laying there. I mean, the the good thing with some of these hay fields, well, all the most all these hay fields, there will be a lot of roots that are very very shallow. The problem with having so Correct. much of the phosphorus there is now you're really dependent on rainfall. And granted, being from Georgia, it's whole different than where I am. Where I mean, like last year, I think we had 15 total inches of precip counting the snow. And you probably had that last month. You know what I mean? So, well, not quite that oh, much, yeah. but anyway. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, so I wouldn't get super worried about that. But it, it is one of these things to think about in the future. So if, let's say, you're ever going to put in a new grass hay field, alfalfa hay field, whatever, you have one chance in, whatever it is, 10 or 20 years, to put some down deeper in the ground. So... A lot of people talk about never tilling anything. I'm not a big believer in that. I'm not saying you can't do that, but I like using tillage at least occasionally, whether it's deep tillage or just flat out injecting some fertilizer down deeper, because now we place that fertilizer where we where it's going to be best used in our one chance we have in this perennial crop. Uh, to, to to really take advantage of that. So I'd just be thinking about that long term. But yeah, in the short term, you're fine. You you got to have some phosphorus out there. You know you're removing some with your hay crops. So you got to put it back. That's correct. That's correct. Okay. Okay. Well, I appreciate it, fellas. I you, really enjoy your show. So uh, thank awesome. You. Thanks for the call, Doug.
Yeah, that is a very common question that Doug had right there. And like I was saying, every area kind of varies too, because like in my area with as little rain as we get, this is why it's a bigger deal how we place some of the nutrients here compared to in Doug's case, or like, let's say you have irrigation or sand or whatever. But, you know, even in sand and with lots of rainfall, phosphorus doesn't move like almost any other nutrient will move. Even potassium can move fairly well in sand when you have lots of rainfall, but that that darn phosphorus, it just, it does not go hardly anywhere. So we just have to be thinking about this. And, and that's why I said at the outset of our show today, this is probably the most important nutrient where if you just think before you apply it and apply it as good as you can where it needs to be, you're going to get more efficiency out of that. You're going to get more bang for your buck or at least get uh, more use out of that in the short term, which can be a big deal if you're renting ground compared to if you own the land. We'll keep talking phosphorus and get to more of your questions coming up next. Control the toughest weeds with overlapping residuals. Lock in the longest lasting control for your soybean fields. A pre-emergence application of an authority brand herbicide plus a post-application of Anthem Max herbicide establishes the overlapping residual control key to safeguarding your soybean seasons. This pairing is a heavy-duty economical strategy against Palmer Amaranth, Waterhemp, Kosha, and more. Visit your FMC retailer or lockin.ag.fmc.com today. Always read and follow all label directions. Your crop deserves the best, not just a contender. Choose a Champ brand fungicide from New Farm for proven performance in the formula you prefer. Champ Formula 2 Flowable offers exceptional mixing and stability in a liquid copper. Champ Ion comes supercharged for superior coverage in a dry formulation. Any way you turn, New Farm has the copper solution you can win with. Put a Champ in your corner at newfarm.com slash uscrop. What does it really mean to provide the best crop nutrition? With AgroLiquid, you're getting a -a one-of-a-kind approach, one that caters to your specific agronomic needs. You're getting a crop nutrition plan that maximizes your fertilizer applications from every drop, all while accounting for your management practices and the products you're already using. But it's not just a product. It's peace of mind, knowing we've thought of everything. That's the AgroLiquid way. Apply less, expect more. Find a retailer at agroliquid.com. Ag PhD has one mission, to give you the knowledge you need to make your farm more successful. That's why every issue of the Ag PhD Insider Magazine features crop fertility and pest management tips, insights into the world's highest yielding farmers, updates and results from our infield research trials, as well as the latest agronomy information from Brian and Darren Hefty. We put it all in one place so you can make your farm more productive and profitable. Subscribe to the Ag PhD Insider at agphdinsider.com. This whole midnight ride thing is getting really... What APPD-resistant weeds are coming? We've got Verdict Herbicide. Verdict Herbicide? Yeah, it's a non-HPPD corn pre-herbicide from BSF. Oh, well then, get some sleep. Yeah, will do. The weeds are coming! Switch to Verdict Herbicide! Always read and follow label directions! Win the war against weeds in your soybean fields with fierce herbicides from Valent USA. With three different formulations and multiple modes of action, you're sure to find the right fierce product to protect your operation from tough weeds like Palmer Amaranth and Waterhemp. 
Give your soybeans a strong, clean start with up to eight weeks of residual control with the powerful pre-emergence protection of Fierce Herbicide. Ask your local retailer or visit valent.com fierce to find the right Fierce formulation for you. Always read and follow label instructions. listening to Ag PhD Radio. Thanks for joining us today. We've been talking about phosphorus, but we're going to dive back into the Ag PhD mailbag. And once you know it, Brian, we got a couple of phosphorus questions that have come in today here uh, to get to. First one comes from William. I've got a permanent crop, hazelnuts, and fertilizer is typically broadcast or it's run through the drip. My question is, would protected phosphorus fertilizers like, say, AgroLiquid's ProGerminator be more likely to move down in the soil faster than broadcasting a dry like 1150? Probably, yeah. There have been some people that have talked about streaming liquid phosphorus just in a spot because the whole thing is, like I said early in the show, if you put a ridiculous amount on, then it's possible to move down. Well, if you think about it, I mean, a ridiculous amount could actually be very few gallons if they're all in one spot. So if you were to stream it in one spot, it's got a better chance to move down. All right. Thanks, William. That's a good question. I got this one that came in from Nolan, and he said, I've been using a 10-inch spacing single-disc air seeder to place dry fertilizer and anhydrous ahead of the planter. I run the seeder at an angle to the field, and then I run the planter straight back and forth. We're using 5 gallons of 1034-0 with zinc in the furrow on the planter. The dry fertilizer is usually a blend of 11.52 and PPC. Hmm. I should be setting the air seeder openers to the maximum depth, and I'm just wondering... Do you have any other suggestions? So, you know, this is one of those things, too, running at an angle with the fertilizer so you can run straight with the the planter, just trying to avoid a situation where you just overdid it in the furrow. Uh, there's a lot, of, a lot of folks that do that with anhydrous and with other things, too, so not a surprise there. Five gallons at 1034-0 uh, in the furrow on the planter is something we're normally not in favor of. Normally, we like to be three gallons or less on 1034-0. Wait, 10, what, what, what row spacing? Uh 10, but he's, yeah, Wait, that's true. He's, no, I thought the drill was 10 inch. Now, was I, I thought he said he ran the, at an angle with he's that. He's using and the then, drill, using the drill to, uh, to put fertilizer out there, but the planter. And he's going at an angle with that. And then he he's going straight with the planter. Yeah, he doesn't tell us the real spacing. Right. Five gallons is a lot for 30 inch rows. We usually like to see three gallons or less, but let's say it was 15 inch rows or 20 inch rows. Well, a 20 inch row, then you'd be about at our limit, but you probably would not be exceeding it, or if you were, it wouldn't be that much. So anyway, my point here is, um, I don't, I don't really, I don't think we have any huge issue with that, other than cut your 1034-0 rate a little bit. And yeah, we just want to try to get our phosphorus down as deep as we can on the ground. Now, let's say that you are, just for anybody out there, a no-till person or a never-till person, and you go, well, I, I just can't get it in the ground. I, like I often will tell guys, okay, literally two by two, that's not bad. And there are all kinds of no-till or never-till people that will do coulters two by two. Well, that means you're now four inches deep. Well, four inches deep is one heck of a lot better than laying it on the soil surface. 
So this is part of the reason why a lot of guys have now gone to two by two on both sides of the row because they say, well, wait a second. If my yield is going much higher, I need more fertilizer. If I put too much in one spot, they could burn roots off and they're right. So that's where putting half on each side of the row now allows you to put more in total out there. All right, next question. All right, this one comes in from Ryan over in Illinois, and there's soil samples and then also the fertilizer wreck on the backside. And Ryan said, I'll cut to the chase here. We're Mississippi River floodplain soil in Illinois, and it's tight. 40% magnesium, and the calcium is yep. a little bit low, 57%. But that's 97 right there, Ryan. That doesn't leave a lot of room for potassium. I'm going to guess potassium is quite low, too. Okay, so he said... 2, uh, two to 2.8%, so it's not horrific. Okay. No. But so anyway, he said, we're, uh, we're working on lining up the funding to get drain tile installed. In the meantime, we're trying to figure out how much calcium we need to apply to, to bring this up into the 60s. We talked about lime, but the pH is 6.9 and 7.1. Yep. Yeah, so, I would do that. So our dealer is suggesting gypsum. Yep, agreed. Just, Curious what you think about well, the gypsum. Would that work? Yeah, but but here's the problem. I don't have a complete soil test. I don't know how much sulfur is already in the ground. You might have 2,000 pounds of sulfur out there. You might have two. I don't know. What I, where I'm going with this is would I throw more sulfur out there if I already had 2,000 pounds of soil? No possible chance. I'd fix the drainage and the sulfur. A lot of that will be sulfate and it'll combine with magnesium. and It'll flush some of that out of the ground over time. So... I, I really want to see a complete soil test. I'd also like to see excess lime, soluble salts, sodium. I mean, none of these things are tested. I know what a Midwest Labs test costs. You got most of it, but I think it's only about another five bucks, and you would have had the complete test with sulfur, zinc, manganese, iron, copper, boron, excess lime, soluble salts, and sodium, and those are all things we'd really like to see. So, Assuming that there's not much sulfur out there, I would tell you, yes, I'm going gypsum. That would be a great way to go. You'll add a little more calcium. You'll also start to flush some of the magnesium out. And so the formula gets very complicated because if it was just, oh, we're going to add one thing, okay, that's pretty simple. But when you're trying to also at the same time flush something out, well, your ratio can can really flip in a hurry. So if it's me, I'm going to throw some gypsum out there. Absolutely. But I'm not going to get super carried away. I'm going to take it a little bit at a time because, quite frankly, I don't know that that's your biggest yield limiting factor. Uh, you don't have a lot of phosphorus there. You don't have a lot of K. I mean, it's not bad, but you don't have a lot of K there. And I don't know how you're doing on all these other nutrients. So the biggest thing we're always telling people is, look, I, I get it that you want to fix that calcium magnesium thing. And I would too over a long period of time, but it's kind of expensive to do that. So in the meantime, I got to make money and I got to make sure that all my other nutrients are at the right levels. I'm doing that first, then I'm spending some money on gypsum. That's what I do. All right. The other question Ryan had is since we're having a water infiltration problem here, would a deep ripper help us in a high mag soil like this? You guys have some high mag soils. What's worked for you? Um, not really, because you end up taking the base out, it makes it soft in the spring, and sometimes you just end up with more problems. Honestly, what we've done on some of that type of ground is we've gone to strip till, and then we've banded the fertilizer so we don't have the tie-up. Um, it's been firm more in the middle, and it's worked out pretty well. 
to to get back out there early in the spring. So yeah, we've I, I would just say in the short term, if it's my ground, if this was, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll just tell you that. If it was my ground, first thing I'm doing, getting complete soil tests. Second thing I'm doing is throwing uh, or a tile in the ground, absolutely for sure. Third thing I'm doing, I'm fixing every single nutrient. K, P, sulfur, zinc, all the nutrients, I'm fixing all that. The last thing I'm doing is throwing some gypsum out there. And granted, I'd probably all do that all in one year. Don't get me wrong if it's my ground. But I, I would just say um, we, we, we got to look at this as a long-term project. And I'm probably not going to fix this calcium-magnesium ratio completely in one shot. Because we have shown, boy, if we can get that magnesium down below 20%, then we are gaining yield. But what are you going to spend to get there? And that, that, that's, that's my whole thing. So I'd be addressing it a little bit at a time with some gypsum, and then we go from there. And in the meantime, yeah, I would strip till, so then it doesn't cost me so much to, like I was saying, kind of fix some of these nutrient issues. Well, just feed your crop with the strip till. You'll get better uptake and intake in that first year, and then you go from there, and it gives you a few more dollars to spend on the gypsum. So anyway, those are just my thoughts. That's what I'd do if it was my ground. All right. Thanks for the question. We really appreciate oh, that. And right? we have had ground where the soil test, I mean, literally, oh, yeah. if you would have handed me this soil test from about eight, 10 years ago, I'd have said, oh, this is that field on the river bottom. No, this is some guy in, where was it again? Missouri. Illinois. <laughs> oh, Illinois. Sorry. <laughs> All right. Uh, speak about uh, land, other places looking like some of the land that we've seen right here. Here's a, here's a picture of some land they're trying to reclaim over in Egypt. This comes from Hassab. And he said, guys, uh, we were recommended to apply three and a half tons of gypsum per acre here. And uh, we we actually put on seven tons. Uh, we plowed <laughs> hey, the he land. He sounds like my kind of guy. Plowed the land, leveled <laughs> it, deep ripped it, uh, having some saline issues. Uh, we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about this question and how to deal with some saline issues in soil. Coming up right after this, you're listening to Ag PhD Radio. Stay tuned. It's planting season. Race against the clock season. Mistakes can't happen season. And no one helps you face it all like John Deere. Putting technology in your hands that gets you in and out of the field faster. That makes your spacing and depth more accurate. And that gives you the confidence that this season will be your best season. See what you have to gain at johndeere.com slash gain ground. This season, get medieval on Rhizoctonia with the powerful protection of Excalia fungicide from Valent USA. Here to shield your sugar beets from the treachery of Rhizoctonia, Excalia delivers excellent staying power, keeping your sugar beets from being conquered. Stay one step ahead of Rhizoctonia with the powerful protection of Excalia. Ask your retailer or visit valent.com slash Excalia to learn more. Always read and follow legal instructions. The value of your farm building is in its ability to protect what's stored inside. That's why Morton Buildings ensures that every machine storage and insulated workshop we build will provide superior strength and durability. As a 100% employee-owned company, we're all committed to being the industry leader with a focus on innovation, service, quality, and most importantly, customer satisfaction. To get started on your next project, please visit mortonbuildings.com. 
Don't turn your fertilizer application plan into a guessing game. Understand exactly how much fertility you need to reach your yield goals with the Ag PhD Fertilizer Removal App. Simply enter your crop and your yield goal and the Ag PhD Fertilizer Removal App calculates the amount of nutrition needed to keep your crop healthy and working for you. Quit playing guessing games with your fertility needs. Download the Ag PhD Fertilizer Removal App today. Available on the Apple App Store and in Google Play. Applying nitrogen in my planter is an important part of our system. It's efficient and puts nitrogen right in the root zone. Hi, Greg Souter. 360 tanks make on-planter nitrogen much easier. Those 700-gallon tanks keep the tractor balanced, distributing weight evenly over the axles, and they give me great visibility. Plus, with the narrow transport width, mailboxes are safe. Take a good look at 360 Yield Center tractor tanks and see how they help boost efficiency at planting time. At Corteva AgriScience, we want to keep farms healthy and productive, today and tomorrow. That's why we're investing in a robust pipeline of naturally derived biologicals. Meet Nutrition and Nutrient Efficiency Optimizer. It's a sustainable nitrogen fixation product that facilitates crop growth and optimizes yield potential. With the fluctuation in fertilizer prices, Utricia N is a reliable solution. It can be used alongside your traditional nitrogen program to enhance your ROI this year. For more information, visit Corteva.us. Thanks for listening to Ag PhD Radio. We were talking phosphorus on today's show, but we've got some other questions in here in the Ag PhD mailbags. We've kind of veered off into a saline soil discussion. This particular question came from Egypt, and Hassam had sent us uh, uh, some samples and a uh, little different measurements on those samples. So it's, it's uh, gosh, I wish we had a sample from our own lab here so we could understand it just a little bit from better. But lab. let yep. me give you a little more of the background here. Uh now, Sam said, I put gypsum on, I put seven tons to the acre. I plowed the land, leveled it, deep ripped it, and ditched it. Uh, I flood the land once every day. Uh, I, I till uh, just real shallow. And before, for oh, I'm sorry, till, till it's around 30 centimeters on top of the soil. Now I understand. Uh, so 30 centimeters deep is the water. Then before it leaches out dry, which takes less than 24 hours, I flood it again so the ditches never stop that leaching. Uh, so they've filled them up about 35 times in 35 days so far. He said, I'm just wondering, is this a good strategy? The, the ledges of the ditch are really salty now, of course, mm -hmm. and he's, he's basically just trying to reclaim this poor land and leach out anything that's bad. Um, just kind of curious, Well, would a cover crop be a better situation here, having something grow out there that might also pull things out of the soil? Okay, I, I'm just concerned about where is all this stuff going? It's hot in Egypt, and are we losing a bunch to evaporation, which then means there's a bunch of salt that's on top of the ground too. So the biggest key usually, like when we talk about saline soil here in the United States. The first thing that we're going to do is put tile on the ground. we got to fix the subsurface drainage. It's not about the surface drainage. And I understand the leaching and stuff, but as soon as you say ditches and things like that, it's extremely concerning to me. So let's just say that this was my ground. And I, 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 I don't know what the cation exchange capacity is here, so it's really hard for me to say this. But let's say it's medium to heavy soil. It kind of looks like a medium to heavy soil texture just from what I see. So if it was me, um, 
you got all these ditches and everything going through here, and maybe it's so heavy you have to do that. But personally, I'd have no ditches. I don't like ditches. I don't even like eliminating potholes. What I like doing is fixing the subsurface drainage by installing drain tile. And you might say, well, that costs a bunch more money. Yep, it does. But that usually fixes problems because now we can flush, truly flush stuff down through the soil, not to the side, not through evaporation, anything else. It's truly flushing through the soil. I'm also looking hard at what do I have for a calcium level in that soil. And like in his case here, um, it's I, 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 don't, I just don't know for sure because I, I'm not used to seeing what he's sent. So I can't really tell. Uh, what exactly he's got for calcium levels and magnesium levels and stuff like that in, in the soil because I'm not used to reading a test like what he sent over. So I apologize. Um, it, it's, it, it's hard to know what to tell you to do. Now, it, it looks like, it appears that there's a lot of sodium out there. And whenever there's a lot of sodium, that's the reason why we throw sulfur out because we're trying to make sodium a salt. Because sodium on its own is not leachable. And the purpose is we want to make uh, it leachable. So to do that, that's where we usually combine sodium with sulfate. Now it's a salt. Now it can flush out of the ground if you have the good drainage that I'm talking about. So th those are the things that I'm interested in. Uh, go back, Darren. What was his What was his actual question? What was he just saying? It was just about strategy and... and well, he's got a few what questions. He's just wondering about what do you, what you think about the ditching and that strategy. So you address that. I, and, I, I and he, worry about that. Yes. Yeah. And he said he intends to soil test at the end of the process, but I'm wondering if he, there's an EC level that he should start planting. At. I think Midwest Labs can take samples from other countries, if I remember right. That'd be I don't something know to check out. Egypt. It's MidwestLabs.com. But I mean, there are several different U.S. labs that at least they're running tests we're more familiar with. But if, if they get a complete analysis like we talk about here on the show all the time, that would, that would be just incredibly helpful for us. Then he's wondering, should he plant a cover crop and uh, allow that to protect the soil okay. surface and start the bioactivity. Yeah, here's here's the other thing. Let's go back in history. Before anybody had really any information and they were just kind of on their own, the way you learn these things is trial and error. And that's the way Darren and I have learned a lot of things too. That's and, exactly what I was thinking yep. is I'd keep doing what you're doing on some if you think that's helping yep. and then I'd do something different on part of it and yep. just see if that, that area comes along Gets a little better. quicker. Yep, finally. But if you've got really high sodium levels, then you got to look at the crops that will handle really high sodium levels. So, for example, we often talk about barley. Uh, that's a pretty good high sodium crop, probably the best. Whereas if you're going to raise most of the crops we normally raise, like corn and soybeans, not going to do super well in high sodium. All right. Um, get this question in. This is from Pennsylvania. This one comes in from David. He said, all right, guys, I pulled some soil samples in August, and afterwards I applied one ton of calcitic lime per acre. Next, I want to try and raise the base saturation of K to a minimum of 4%. However, I'm assuming now the base saturation percentages have changed following my lime application. Yeah, maybe um, just a little bit. Nothing uh, to get that worried about. I found your... Uh, your base saturation calculator spreadsheet on agphd.com, and I put my levels in. If one ton of lime, in this case, had 800 pounds of calcium in it, that equates to 400 parts per million. Yep. And adding that in, 
uh, you can increase the the saturations and so forth. Yep. Uh, also, I've got a base saturation sodium percentage ranging from zero point six to zero point nine. Is that an issue? No. Is that tell me anything about drainage nope. or any of those types of things? Okay. No, that's good. Most there are a lot of crops like some of the brassicas. They need a little bit of sodium um, in kind of in that range, half a part per million or half a percent to one percent so i mean having some sodium out there absolutely zero problem all right and then the last thing you said i plan to sow these fields down to timothy hay this spring uh, anything else on the soil <laughs> test that that gives you an idea of what i okay. should do for that i plan on raising my minimum foss levels to at least 60 parts per million i did primary tillage last fall and the average grid size here is 2.75 acres all right so we talked about this earlier in the show perennial crop timothy if it's me, I'm raising my P and K uh, a lot. Yeah, this uh, is your I, shot to do it. Right. I'm going to say a, a lot more than what you're thinking right now, like a ridiculous amount more than what you're thinking right now for me. So just keep that in mind. This is your chance to get your P especially down in the ground, your phosphorus especially down in the ground, but even potassium to some degree. So I, I don't forget, to about zinc. It's a minor thing for most people, but zinc doesn't move very well either, just like phosphorus doesn't move. Same thing with copper. So I, I, I mean, honestly, if it's me, I'm thinking about raising my phosphorus levels to 100 at a bare minimum and maybe even 200. And you might go, oh my goodness, that's insane. Try it on just a little bit and then see. Otherwise, you're never going to know. So I, I'm, I'm serious. On just a few acres, get yourself up to 200 parts per million, put it down in the ground uh, and uh, on the phosphorus, and at least get some zinc and some copper out there because your zinc and copper are certainly not in ratio even right now with your phosphorus. Well, actually, they, are, they probably are right now because your phosphorus is pretty low. But what you were talking about getting to even – you're you're not in ratio. So get at least a little bit of zinc out there, a little bit of copper. Now is the time. All right. Thanks for the question. We appreciate that. Uh, okay. John sent this in and he said, um, common buckthorn. He said, years ago, like 45 years ago, I had a landlord with a field and conservation reserve program that was being overgrown by buckthorn. He cut it in the fall, applied a now unavailable chemical, and it worked great. Uh, I'm living outside of Milwaukee. I've got a tree line that has common buckthorn in it, and I know cutting in the fall was really important, uh, but is there anything I could use to systemically uh, kill the roots out once we cut these things? Uh, is there a treatment that would be safe that wouldn't hurt the other trees in the tree line? Yeah, that's the tricky part to try to kill yep. a woody species right. without killing the others. And, you know, when you think about products like Tordon, for example, a lot of folks would say, well, I'll just put some Tordon in there. That's going to work down through that root system and it could potentially harm other trees out there. So you got to be a little bit careful with that. Yeah, and same thing with chaparral and, and Tordon. So a lot of people end up talking about Remedy Ultra just because that doesn't have soil activity. So they will cut off some of these brush brush species you're talking about. Then they try to wipe the, the Remedy Ultra over the top, and they're just real careful about how they use it. But, yeah, it, it is a little bit of a challenge. Woody species in woody species. Triclopyr? Triclopyr. Yep. Yeah, and you, yep. can, you can generally find that active ingredient in... A hardware store or from a local uh, ag chem supplier or a local tree service. Hey, thanks for the question. We really appreciate that. And thanks to you for listening today. 
Be sure to join us again each weekday for more Ag PhD Radio.